Well, good afternoon. <clears throat> you may have noticed as uh, Gordon was going through that section in Jeremiah that there are actually several chapters devoted to that story of Gedaliah and uh, what happened thereafter and how uh, he was killed and then the people asked Jeremiah, what should we do and we'll do anything you say. And then God went, or Jeremiah went to God. Ten days later, he got an answer. He went back and told the Jews what God had said. And they said, ah, oh, you're lying to us. God didn't say that. Uh, we're going to Egypt. But Jeremiah said, if you go to Egypt, Egypt will be destroyed, and you'll be destroyed with it. Uh, and they went to Egypt, and they were destroyed there. I think it is a prophecy for the future as well being in the end-time book of Jeremiah. It's not just a story of history. But it is interesting <clears throat> to me, <clears throat> and we'll see how it plays out, that the majority of the Jews that have been taken to Babylon had been a captivity. And those who remained behind <clears throat> did not obey God either, and they were killed. Now, what, we ha what have we seen in the church so far? We have seen the church scattered in Babylon and around the world, for that matter. And then we see some who remain. But we also have prophecies that 90% of the church will not listen to the leadership that God sends at the end. 90% of the church will go into the Great Tribulation. They will not go and do what God says and build a temple, but they will go into this society again, remain in sin, and there they will go into captivity, and the greatest preponderance of them will die there. So the story is virtually the same as a historical story of what happened after the Jews went to Babylon and the remainder who were left behind with Gedaliah went into Egypt. So it's eerily close than what we see about to happen and what happened then historically. So is it any wonder that God preserved the fast of the seventh month for us today because we're on the very edge of these things happening again and most of the church not listening <clears throat> when they are told what God wants done. And they'll say that can't be of God. They'll go a different way. They will wind up in the tribulation, and most will die there. That story is very clear, and the under church has understood it a long time. They just haven't understood it in the light of history and the Babylonian captivity and Gedaliah and the whole story that is laid out there. But it's the same story. And isn't it interesting that we find that all through the Bible, wherever we go, that, the, that history is being repeated here as prophecy? I wanted to add that comment because as he was speaking, I sort of glanced over and God set aside several chapters for that story. You know, the Bible is this thick and a lot of things hardly get mentioned. So when God devotes several chapters to it, then it must be a pretty important story. <clears throat> All right, I want to pick up where I left off before trumpets the week before in the book of Ezra, uh, as a brief review, uh, I went through, quickly at least, the story in Isaiah, beginning with chapter 41, where it says that a voice will cry in the wilderness and a highway will be prepared for God. In other words, a work of preparation must be done. And then a few chapters later, in the end of 44, in the beginning of verse four, chapter 45, it talks about a Cyrus showing up, <clears throat> whom God has surnamed, who will be led to see the hidden treasures of darkness and the things that God has hidden from the world, and he will have to break the iron and brass bars and the doors that keep that information hidden so that it might be seen and that it might be for the benefit of God's people. Then shortly after that, if you read on through, uh, it shows in Isaiah 52, especially verses 8 and 9, that God is going to turn things around for his remnant people 
and that the two witnesses there will sing together. In other words, they will see eye to eye uh, for the first time, and then that God calls for his people to be clean who bear the vessels of the eternal. So I think <clears throat> what we have here is history <clears throat> laid out, or prophecy laid out by Isaiah, and it is essentially the same story that we find in the book of Haggai and Zechariah. And we have the historical uh, fulfillment of it in Ezra and Nehemiah. So if we go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, <clears throat> we should see fleshed out and in more detail what is about to happen. Because it's very clear in Isaiah and in Haggai that the temple must be built and that it must be done in the end time by a group of people, not just two, but a group of people who are God's witnesses that he is God. And the way we witness that is by living and walking in faith in God and doing the things he says rather than going back to Egypt, but we are a faithful remnant. And when this financial decree of destruction occurs, which Zephaniah 1 gives us, by the time you get down to chapter 3, he is warned in chapter 2 that we are to separate ourselves and gather ourselves together and be meek and humble and maybe God will preserve us. And then he says in chapter 3 that he will, because the unfaithful city, speaking of the church in Jerusalem, will not follow God, he will have saved for himself a small remnant of meek and humble people. So that's the story of what is about to happen. I think it will be interesting to see if the gathering actually occurs, and there's going to have to be a turnaround and a very dramatic happening before God's remnant will be stirred to come together to build the temple. It will have to be something that will catch their attention, and even then, 90% will deny it and say that cannot be. It will be so strange and God says he has some strange things and secret things to show, and so dramatic, the people simply cannot, will not accept it. Now, he does say to gather in Zephaniah 2 before the decree of destruction given in Zephaniah 1 of the financial system. Now, we have applied that to ourselves, gathering together out here to prepare for God's remnant to gather, uh, and that we should gather, and we've done it, some of us. Some have not seen fit to do so yet, but I hope that at some point in time they will, and that God's faithful remnant will show. But will the 10% remnant that God is going to gather come together before the decree of financial destruction, or will that destruction occur, and then the gathering happen. I would hope, because they will come from all over the world, I would hope that it could be before the financial crash. Uh, travel will be easier, money more available, more opportunity to come, and even then they may have to be helped, I don't know, but God says he will stir them and they will come from afar. Read Zechariah 6, uh, the story is in there to build on the temple. Haggai says that he will stir them to come and build the temple. It appears that the financial crash is becoming pretty close. Uh, even people in the world are talking now about not only recession, but depression and the destruction of the American dollar, and Vicente Fox, ex-president of Mexico, says, yes, indeed, we do have a plan in place, along with President Bush and the Canadian government, to remove the dollar and replace it with another currency, commonly called the Amero. So he has admitted, even though our government might not do so, that this plan is actually in place and they are working on it. So not only is the U.S. dollar going to go away, they have plans to replace it with another currency that is a currency common to Canada, the United States, and Mexico. So our dollar and our sovereignty is being planned to be destroyed by our own government. 
along with Mexico and Canada. And ex-President Fox admitted that in a speech just, I think, last week. So the demise of the dollar and our society and our economy as we have known it will not exist in a very short time. That should make us pause and think very deeply about where we are and what we need to do. Now it just may be that there will be someone come on the scene very shortly who does the things that are said in Isaiah 44 and 45 about Osiris, an unconverted man who is led by God to the treasures of God and then utilizes them to the good of God's people. <clears throat> that is in the plan. And shortly after that, if you follow the context right on through to chapter 52, there will be a turnaround. God's two leaders will come together, and then there will be uh, Isaiah 54 and 55, when the growth of the remnant really explodes. It says, lengthen the stakes of your tents. Many people are coming. And it says, come in chapter 55 and drink wine and milk without money. So the monetary system is going to be destroyed and people will come, but God is going to provide. So that's the story that is laid out for us. Are we prepared for that? Let's go back then to the book of Ezra with that brief background and, and summary of events. And here we see the historical record laid out. We've been through this, how God stirred up Cyrus and how he asked for volunteers to come help build the temple because apparently Daniel had pointed out to him that God had mentioned him in the book of Isaiah and he was to do that. So he said, who is there to come and do this? And then people volunteered, led by... Uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and then it mentions those that came, chapter 2, and you'll recall that toward the end of that chapter, it talked about sorting out those who should be and those who should not be there, who were true, who were true Israelites and who were not, just as in the end time, it will be incumbent upon us to sort out who are true spiritual Jews and who are not. Remember, I mean, uh, Revelation 3, uh, when it talks about the Philadelphia era, says that there will be those who say they are Jews and are not. They say they're part of the church and won't be. So there were there those who could not show, truly, that they belonged there. And they were set aside until later on. Then people offered freely, and began to prepare to set up the house of God. We left it off there. Let's go to chapter 3. And when the seventh month was come, that happened yesterday in, in our lifetime, when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So they came in unity, just like it was one man, all coming together to Jerusalem, for a great purpose. Seventh month was come. Then stood up Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, he was the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. <clears throat> now, if you go through Haggai, you will find that God addresses Zerubbabel, then Joshua, then the remnant of the people who are stirred to come. And it is consistently that way. And Zerubbabel, through this story, generally does the leading, is the, probably, I guess you could say, the key figure. On the other hand, there are exceptions where Joshua stood up first uh, with a particular job to do. Uh, Zechariah 3 is a review of that in a way. Uh, 
which we read parts of in the sermonette. There, God deals with Joshua first in chapter 3, and then deals with both in chapter 4. So a work prior to the entire work of the remnant of the church has to be done ahead of time. That's the way uh, Zechariah is written. This is written the same way. <clears throat> because Joshua was the high priest, Therefore, the religious part of it fell to him in that sense. Uh, Zerubbabel was involved, but since those two are types of Moses and Elijah, Zerubbabel is the type, or Moses, is a, Moses was a type of Zerubbabel to come. And Moses was in charge of the civil side of things. Aaron was the high priest who was under Moses. So even though he was high priest, he answered to Moses. Moses was the key figure. And the same is going to be true in the end. That's the way God sets things up. But there are times when it is a particularly religious thing where uh, the high priest took the lead. So he did in setting up the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. If you go through Numbers, uh, you'll find the feast there and all the sacrifices and offerings that were to be done on each feast. And they set it up to do that. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Eternal, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, if you go to Zechariah 5, you'll find that Two unclean birds take the church, shut her mouth, and take her into Babylon and set her upon her bases there. And I think that the Tkachas, two evil birds, two unclean birds, did take the church back into Babylon. And there they set it up on its, its own base. Here we see a different scenario, and that is that God's people will set up God's religion on a proper base. And there will be people who will not like it. They were afraid of the people of those countries. Now that may be those surrounding uh, Judah, where Jerusalem is, or it may be a mixture of people in that area who will be against them. It will be interesting to see just where this plays out, whether it be in the Middle East, and I'm beginning to think it will be in the main country of Israel today, and that is the United States of America. I believe this to be a major part of the promised land. It's where Israel is today. The, major, the majority leader of Israel is today. So we will offer the proper offerings before God. This can be both physical offerings, but we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, as we saw yesterday, and that is part of the insurance we will have, or the assurance that will be in the first resurrection, is that we present ourselves as proper offerings before God. We must be clean, and we must be the right kind of offering. Nothing unclean can be offered before God. We must be cleansed through Christ and his sacrifice because none of us could be offered before God without being cleansed by his blood because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thankfully, we do have forgiveness and mercy through Christ and he can present us as clean before his Father. Even though we're still yet imperfect, we can be adjudged or presented clean through his blood which is a continual sacrifice. We can be thankful for that continual sacrifice which is offered for us every day, but we cannot despise it either and continue in sin, as Paul made it very clear, where he said, God forbid. Put the sin out and be thankful for the forgiveness who comes through our Savior. But we must be a clean offering.
And we must be, therefore, close to God and close to our Savior so that our sins are continually forgiven and we are adjudged righteous before him. <clears throat> okay, verse 4. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. As an aside, this is a pretty good reference to use to show that we ought to be keeping Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, because this is a historical record of prophetic events. And as, I mean, Haggai and Zechariah are very clearly end-time books, and they tell the story of Zerubbabel and Joshua. How do we know that? Well, look at the end of Haggai, and it talks about how God will shake the heavens and the earth in the day of those two men and the remnant church. Look at the end of the book of Zechariah, and it shows Christ coming and the Mount of Olives dividing in two and the setting up of the government of God on the earth. And the context there is of Zerubbabel and Joshua in the end-time remnant of God's people. So that is clearly an end-time prophecy, and that makes this the same. I find it interesting in a way that the very first service we had in this little organization by phone was on the Feast of Trumpets in the year of 2000. And we went on to keep the Feast of Tabernacles that year for the first time as a group. Now, I don't know that that is a direct parallel to this, and I'm not saying that that was in, in that sense significant. I just find it interesting uh, here you have both Joshua and Zerubbabel on the scene when they did this, and I don't think that we have that today. So perhaps it is still something to be fulfilled in a greater way. But I still feel good in a way that God led us to that point where the Feast of Trumpets was our first service, first official service at all, and from there, we gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. So maybe we are somehow in this story a little bit. I would hope so. <clears throat> there aren't very many people who understand it today. Very few. So those who do understand it, to whom it has become clear, who have had ears to hear and eyes to see, Shouldn't they be involved in it in some way? How would those be involved who don't even know what the story is, to put it a different way? Therefore, since we do understand it, I think we should see a parallel here, and I think we should see ourselves in these scriptures. John Reitenbaugh gave a very good sermon, the very first one in Church of the Great God, where he said, do you see God in your life? We better see God in our life, and we better see our life entwined with his. And I would hope to God that we would find our lives entwined with what he is doing here at the end. And I think everybody who is a part of the church, in whatever group or lack of group they are in, would want to see that. How many of the groups in the scattering of God's church will put out an ad and say, we realize we're not really part of what God's doing here at the end, but we'd like to raise our voice and say something. It's not the way they advertise, is it? Every one of them sees themselves, it appears, to be the crux or the focal point of God's attention. We are the ones. I even heard some say, we're not the elect, we are the very elect. Scary. Very scary. So no matter what we think of ourselves, and I hope that we can see God in what we are doing here, <clears throat> and I think it would be remiss if we did not recognize that. But at the same time, we can't be vain or egotistical or self-righteous about it because we yet have many, many problems, many, many sins and faults and weaknesses and lacks, sins of commission and omission. We're just a bunch of weak and base people, but we have seen a message in these scriptures that we feel motivated to take care of. 
So I'm giving this series on the focus because I think it is important here at the end. We recognize what God is doing, how he's going to do it, and how to become involved in it. Amos 3.8 makes it very clear that God will do nothing except he tell it through his servants, the prophets. Now, shouldn't the whole church take that scripture and then go through the prophets very carefully and find out what God says is going to happen? Because he has revealed it through his servants, the prophets, all the way through the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and even in the historical books, which are also books of prophets. Moses was a prophet. And the book, the things he wrote in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are not only history, they are prophecy. <clears throat> Everything in the Bible is coalescing and coming together right here at the end like it was poured in a funnel and coming together in one focal spot to do a specific work. And God did not lie. He put that story in this book by those prophets. Now it is a question, not of being a prophet, now it is a question of reading what the prophets say and understanding and believing it and acting on it. That's what has to be done. So we need to understand the whole story. I think it does us good to see it laid out, to see what events are going to occur and where God is leading. Without vision, the people perish. Most of the church, we can understand from Scripture, is going to perish physically. Zechariah shows about chapter 10, 11, 12, somewhere along there, that about 30% or a third will repent in the tribulation and therefore will be saved by the time it's over. But they will probably have to die there. I hope we have ears to hear and eyes to see, to know what God is doing, and be able to do our part that we escape that. Now, God has given us that information. I think he's put us in a place to prepare to help bring his remnant together. And we'll see his leadership here, and we will see his remnant, I believe, come here. I think I can show that in Scripture and have in the past. And I hope we survive and wind up being a part of that, and I think that we certainly can. <clears throat> so I say these things, and I lay this story out, not bragging on us, but to tell a story, you've got to tell a story. Let the chips fall where they will. And the story is going to be out there on the Internet, and they can come to it, and they can read it if they want to, and they can see, and they can hear if they have the eyes and ears to hear and see. and some will. But just having it there on the internet is not going to be what does this. People do not come rushing to hear me speak. If, you, if people were depending on a gathering, listening to me speak, there wouldn't be one. I know that. God himself is going to make bare his holy arm and he is going to, through a Cyrus, an unconverted man, uncover some things that are going to shock the world and be a very dramatic thing. And I believe we can be part of it. That's Scripture. I'm not naming a name here. I'm not saying exactly where here. I'm not here to give you that kind of detail today. I am saying that is Scripture and it must be fulfilled. So, the story in Ezra also must be fulfilled. 
So let's read on. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 4, as it is written, and they offered the offerings, <clears throat> verse 5, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the eternal that were consecrated, and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering to the eternal. So not only did they keep the feasts of God, trumpets and tabernacles right here in the seventh month, but they also kept Passover and unleavened bread and Pentecost, the rest of the consecrated feasts, and they also kept the new moons and gave the offerings that are there. Thankfully, we've seen fit to include the new moons. We at least have a Bible study. It has not been proven to me so far from Scripture that new moons are to be reckoned as a Sabbath per se because never in Scripture are they actually called that. But they certainly are set there, and even here it makes a separation between the new moons and the consecrated feasts of God. So the new moon is not a feast, it is not consecrated and set aside that way, but it is certainly mentioned along with the feasts. So it is a very important thing. If you don't understand the new moons in the calendar, you can't keep the feasts at the right time. So having understanding of the new moons and of how the calendar in the heavens works is totally necessary in order to keep the consecrated feasts in their season on the days that was set aside for that. So the new moons are very, very important. There are a few who feel that it should be set aside as a Sabbath, and they're welcome to go ahead and do that. I have no problem with that. I just have not seen enough evidence from Scripture itself where I could feel confident in coming up and saying, we must keep the new moons as a Sabbath. I've not seen enough proof of that. If you feel and your conscience leads you that you feel you should go ahead and do it that way, fine. The only thing I ask is that you do it quietly, uh, as you would any other thing that you might have a different view on from what we are formally doing here. Keep it quietly and don't cause division over it. Remember yesterday that the works of the flesh, one of them is sedition or division and drawing people apart. So when there is different, a different idea on something, you must follow the dictates of your conscience and your understanding, otherwise it is sin to you. But you don't have to use it to create division. So do it quietly, keep your mouth shut. Because if you do cause division or ripple or rift between people and try to take them the way you understand, God has not caused you to be in a position of teaching and leadership, and it is very presumptuous to take that upon yourself. People take it lightly today. Criticizing Moses by Miriam and Aaron, Aaron was the high priest, second in charge, and God took his criticism of Moses very, very seriously. He presumed something, and presumption is as witchcraft. Do you know what witchcraft is? It is worshiping Satan. So God says if we presume to take upon ourselves something he has not given us, we are doing the exact same thing as worshiping Satan. Can I put it any clearer than that? So if we disagree, we need to be very cautious and very careful and not be Satan worshipers because God equates that with presumption. It is arrogant to take upon yourself something God has not given. It is also vanity and ego. So, 
I do not have a problem if someone says, I think the scripture indicates to me that I should keep the new moon as a Sabbath. Fine. I may come to see it that way someday, too. But if you know me at all by now, you know that when I preach something, I preach it. And I mean it. And I think I can prove it in Scripture or I wouldn't say it. I try to keep my opinions out of most things and just expound the Scripture. So until I feel that I can absolutely prove and preach in good conscience that the new moon is a Sabbath day, I will not. Now we need to be careful, and I'm not saying that I'll never preach that, because I may. I just don't know yet. Okay? So if you choose to go ahead and do it, I have no bone to pick with you, as long as you do it quietly and don't cause sedition and division among God's people. And that applies to anything that you feel you see in the Scripture. Don't flaunt it. Don't promote it. Just quietly do it. That is the right and proper example and way to handle that kind of thing. It shouldn't necessarily create division among us. Because if the leadership doesn't say, you've got to believe everything exactly the way I say it, then why should we depart over it? except and unless it gets in our craw. And sometimes things will get in someone's craw, and they just simply can't handle it. I think that's what Gordon was in a, in a way saying in the sermonette. It certainly covers that. We will not always agree on everything, brethren. We just won't. And we can walk together if we agree on most things. We don't have to agree on absolutely everything to walk together. But some people will say, you've got to see it my way or else. Well, okay, if they're going to depart, let them depart. It's sad that they have to take that strong a line. No two people have ever agreed on everything. Only two beings in the universe have ever agreed on everything. That's the Father and the Son. Don't you even try to tell me that you husbands and wives out there have always agreed on everything. Some, some couples will tell you, we've never had an argument. We've never had a fight. Give me a break. Maybe you haven't thrown things, but you can't tell me you haven't disagreed. I know better. No, maybe you don't fight and throw things, but there are still... You may handle it quietly, but it's still not fun when you disagree. So don't tell me you haven't had an argument or fight or disagreement or whatever. You know, fight in quotes, that, that, that can be something very mild or escalate to something really bad. A fight can be sometimes when you just disagree and you don't even talk for a little while. That, that's kind of a mild fight. When you start throwing things and shooting things, and that's, that escalates, see, but it, it's still a fight. It's a fight of wills, it's a fight of silence, it can be a fight of words. There are no two people who have ever been at one completely other than the Father and the Son. I think Scripture shows that. How did I get clear to there from here? Well, new moons did it. Uh, and then that's okay. I, sometimes we need to blow some air through the laundry once in a while and, and uh, set some things in order. And I want you to know how I feel about that and I think what Scripture says about that. Not just my feelings, but we, heard, we read it yesterday about how works of the flesh include sedition or division or heresy. Heresy can be defined as anything you believe that I don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? You obviously 
feel you're right about everything you believe. Or you wouldn't believe it. Therefore, if somebody disagrees with you, then you would say that's heresy because I'm right and you're wrong. Well, that's just human. That's just normal. But does it stand up in the light of God's Word? And that's the, that's the final test as to what true heresy is, not just our opinions. Okay, verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, that would be trumpets, began they to offer burnt offerings to the eternal, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they had left Babylon with the blessing of Cyrus to go there and to build it, and yet they kept the Feast of Trumpets, and the foundation of the temple was not laid. It says of Zerubbabel in the end time there in chapter 4, your hands have begun the temple, they will finish it. So I think that one who will come as Zerubbabel started something and backed off, got afraid, and would not finish it. But God says, you will. And he says of him in Isaiah that he's blind and deaf, doesn't see or hear, has heard and seen, I believe, but does not quite grasp. But if he is a righteous man, God will use him eventually, but he will open his eyes, he will open his ears when God brings back Zion, Isaiah 52, 9. He is going to see something very dramatic happen, and suddenly his eyes are going to open, and his ears will open, and he will believe and understand and act. And he will become a powerful leader through God's power, not his own power. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. As I said, the Minor Prophet series, I think he's out to lunch at the moment. Which is just a common slang way of saying what I just said from Scripture. So, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also to the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil, and to them of Zidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Remember, the story in Haggai says, look, you've got bags with holes and you're living in your homes, come and build my temple. And he says, go to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. Doesn't say bring marble, doesn't say bring stones. The end time temple, if there's a physical one, is going to be built with wood. Uh, the spiritual parallel there is that God uses the analogy of churches or people in churches and men as trees. So you go and you gather trees or men to build a spiritual temple, and at the same time, there may well be a physical temple built, but this time it will be of wood. We shall see. It may be that the financial crash will occur and we will have a period of time in which that temple must be built and you can't go to Home Depot and Lowe's, so you've got to go to the mountains and bring wood and build it with what you cut down yourself. There is a misunderstanding, and I might make comment on it here a little bit, in the timing of events and what must occur, and most of the church does not understand it. And that is, the God says there in Zechariah 2, the towns without walls must be built, and that there will be much men and cattle there, and God will provide each man with his own vine and fig tree, so it will be a time when there's a covert from the heat, God will protect it with a wall of fire so that no one can destroy and God's people will live in an agricultural society which we are seeking to, in our own way, establish, knowing that God will add what is needed in order to truly, fully accomplish it before this is over. But the financial crash will come, and this nation is going to be taken into captivity, but those towns, those villages without walls, will survive the destruction of this nation. This nation, according to Daniel, as I see Daniel 8, and I might be misinterpreting, but I believe that this fits, is that this nation will ultimately be divided into four parts. 
and that in the latter years of that administration of the New World Order, with this nation divided up, a little horn will come up in one of those four, probably the southwestern one, I would guess, guess, it will come to destroy the church. will set the abomination of desolation in those villages, those towns, which God will reckon as Jerusalem at that point, and maybe the original Jerusalem will be a part of it. And they will set the abomination of desolation up, and at that time the church flees to Zion. And there we will stay 42 months while Jerusalem is trodden down of the Gentiles. So it does look like we will have a period of time that the towns and villages are built, this country is destroyed, and they will go about setting up their new world order. But we will become at some point a thorn in their side, and they will come to destroy us. And at that time, Satan will be cast down and come after us, and we must flee. The good encouraging part of that is, though, that when the turnaround comes, God has promised healing and that we'll, the lame will walk and the deaf and the blind will see and hear. I got that backward. I do that sometimes. You don't, well, never mind. So we do have some time, but we'll feel good and we'll be able to do those things that we need to do. We're not going to be decrepit and diabetic and have heart problems and all kinds of problems that we have today will be healthy. And that will make it bearable. So we have a few years, I believe, in which the towns without walls will exist under God's supervision until the abomination is set. So understand that people say the Great Tribulation is about to start. The Tribulation doesn't start when this nation falls. The beast and the whore destroy this nation. And then we have a job to do as a light to the world until they come to destroy us. And then we flee. Okay? That's a thumbnail synopsis of that. I, we've seen various elements of that in sermons before, so uh, it's, it's kind of a review in that sense. But I think we need to clearly understand that there is some time after this financial collapse in which Zerubbabel and Joshua will be together and the remnant will be there. By no means or by no stretch can we say that that has already occurred because we do not have that leadership here and the 10% remnant of the church has not come together yet. Now whether they get here just before the crash or just after, I suppose, remains to be seen. But God lays out the order, come before. So he may show his dramatic arm and who he is a little ahead of the crash. We're on a thing here where the timing is getting pretty tight. The crash looks fairly imminent. It might take another year or so, I don't know. But it's looking like it could crash almost any time. Several things could precipitate that. I mean, all it would take would be for the Chinese to sell a trillion dollars overnight. That's all it would take. And that's just one thing that I could mention. I could mention 10 or 15 more. Let's not go there. This is the story we want to know. We, we don't really care what the world is doing out there in a way. We care what God is doing. That's what I'm trying to focus on here. What God is going to do and how we can be a part of it. So the foundation of the temple was not yet laid, though they kept the Feast of Tabernacles after the Feast of Trumpets. They gave money, verse 7, to the masons, to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil to them of Zidon, to them of Tyre, to bring the cedar trees from uh, Lebanon to build the temple. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, he takes the lead again, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity to Jerusalem. I think that indicates we'll have two main leaders. We will have other ministers who will prove to be faithful, who will come, and we will have that 10% remnant of the people as well. All will be included. All they that were come out of the captivity to Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the eternal. So they came, 
they were given their orders and they got things lined out and decided who could work and who couldn't work and who could be included and who wouldn't. And then in the second year, in the second month, which would be about May, they actually began to work on it. And they had to be 20 years old and upward. I think that gives us some indication of when our children have full accountability for their lives is at age 20. They don't answer to their parents anymore from age 20 on. They answer directly to God for all their thoughts and their actions. In this land, we have set 18 as the age of maturity, more or less, or of adulthood. Maturity is a different matter. But adulthood is based on 18. In God's word, 20 is the age of accountability, or the age of adulthood, not 18. So our children should respect and pay attention to their parents until they are 20. Then they answer directly to God. So you can do it this world's way at 18, and you children, children, you young people, can insist on being adults at 18 if you want to, and you can say the law of the land says I can be, and I'm out of here. See ya. Go out. If you feel you must, and do what you feel you must do, and learn some very, very hard lessons. Or pay attention. It's up to you. But God's age of accountability is 20. So also, consider that once you do turn 20, you will have to answer to God, not just your parents. You better be prepared for that. You can't say, yeah, but my parents, after you hit 20. God holds you entirely accountable after that. Can't blame anything on your parents. It's your deal from 20 on. And you will answer directly to God for it. Then stood Joshua, he took the lead again, with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together, they did it in a unified, organized fashion, to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Eternal, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Eternal after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. That's an interesting slant on things. While we build, perhaps we should set aside music with praise to God. And as we build a church, we should be singing hymns and praise to God, and we do. But perhaps if it comes to a physical temple that must be built, we need singers there. So you need morticians? No. no th those aren't the people that lay mortar, is it? <laughs> Forgive me. Uh, you have masons, and you have builders, and you have tree cutters, and maybe we'll have some singers. I thought it was neat hearing the trumpet yesterday, even if it was recorded. But a trumpet played live, not over the speaker system, just will raise the hair on your neck. I, I love to hear that kind of trumpet music. Bagpipes do the same thing to me. And the bagpipes were uh, an ancient instrument of Israel. But they stir the blood. So they had trumpets and cymbals to praise the eternal. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks to the eternal. So some sang in the courses of the Levites, then others would sing, and then the others had their month, and they would sing. Giving thanks to God because he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. God uh, uses that term 41 times, I believe, in the Bible. I saw it in the concordance yesterday. His mercy endureth forever. Exactly put that way. 
It's put different ways in other places, but used exactly that way. It's either 41 or 47 times. So when it is said, His mercy endures forever, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Eternal because the foundation of the house of the Eternal was laid. That's going to be an exciting day when we see God bring His leadership together, bring His remnant together, and the foundation for the latter temple be laid in terms of the people who all come to fit together to be the spiritual temple, and perhaps even if a physical temple is built, when the foundation is laid, what a happy day that will be, because it will be truly the temple of God. I was there for the groundbreaking of the house for God in Pasadena when Mr. Armstrong took that golden-plated shovel and took the first shovel out. And it was an exciting time. I think I got chills that day, as I recall, just watching because it was a house for God. But it was part of the former temple. And as resplendent and beautiful as it turned out to be, we, the spiritual temple, were not what we should have been. So God had to blow it apart. It's sitting there now. The egrets are still in front of the building but there's no water going through the fountains. It's just sitting there, full of gravel and flowers now. And they've taken, there's still, apparently, from one account I read, one plaque that says a house built for God, and the other has something about some Protestant school on it. Makes me sick. But I'm encouraged that this story is here, and the latter temple must be built, and God will show his glory in it and he will show it to the whole world. And his witness will go out to the entire world, and then the end will come. So we have some exciting things to look forward to as part of God's people. But many of the priests and Levites and chiefs of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. So they'd been there before the Babylonian captivity. They'd seen the temple. They witnessed Nebuchadnezzar come in and destroy it. And now, 70-plus years later, they saw the temple foundation relayed. Just as we, who saw worldwide built over a period of time, and we saw the foundation of that physical building laid in Pasadena, and then we've seen it go to nothing. But in these scriptures we find that God is going to restore it in our lifetime. And we're going to be able to see a people coming together in uh, unanimity and unity. Haggai 9 says, or Haggai 2 verse 9 says, In this place will I bring peace, or give peace, he says. So God is going to bring this latter temple together and bring peace. And there are still going to be men, according to the prophetic record, not just this historical record, in Haggai, Haggai 2, verses 1 through 3, which says that there will be old men who saw the former temple, and they'll see the latter temple, and what they saw before will be nothing in comparison to what we are going to see in the next few years. Nothing. Can't even compare. To me, that is exciting. This is going to come back together in love, unity, and peace. So they wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard far off. I'd like to be there when we get this next foundation laid and this all comes together and we will be all so excited and so happy and so joyous that we would cry and shout for joy all at the same time. Tears of joy streaming from our faces so that these fasts like we're going to keep starting tonight for tomorrow will no longer be a fast but a feast of joy. What a thing to look forward to. I have more time, but I think that's a good place just to stop today.
And we'll pick it up there next time, God willing.